Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll look at the effect of drought and climate change on the well-being of agricultural workers. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, should I be doing this? Like, does this make any sense? We'll also take a look at how pandemic closures allowed for many Native American reservations in the Mountain West to experience their land without visitors. And we explore a bill that would allow people to defer paying some of their residential property taxes. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. In another sign that the pandemic is ending, people at hundreds of residential care facilities across Colorado are now allowed to skip wearing masks, and that includes visitors. But there's a caveat, and it's one you've heard over and over by this point. It only applies to people who are fully vaccinated. KUNC's Michael DeYuana has been covering how COVID-19 has impacted residents in these facilities since the pandemic hit them hard more than a year ago. Colorado Edition's Aaron O'Toole spoke with Michael to get an update. Back in March, we checked in with you on what's been happening inside residential care facilities. We're talking nursing homes, assisted living centers, those kinds of places. And at that time, you were tracking a significant drop in COVID-19 outbreaks among residents and workers. Right. Now, now let me rewind just a little more. I want to remind our listeners that these facilities have been the hardest hit throughout the pandemic, roughly 40% of the state's COVID deaths have emanated from these facilities. And most of those who lost their lives were the residents who tend to be older with health issues that put them at risk for a severe infection in the first place. In January, it looked as bad as ever. There was a spike in outbreaks, but that is also when residents and workers started getting vaccinated. So by March, most of them were fully vaccinated As a snapshot from my reporting, there were 54 new outbreaks at facilities in March. In the last week, the one ending June 1st, there are 20 new outbreaks. That sounds like progress, but the virus is obviously still active and still impacting facilities. Yes, a very real and scary concern still for many. And in all, about 100 facilities across the state are contending with what state officials consider to still be active COVID outbreaks. I'm assuming masks then are not coming off in those facilities? Correct. And masks are not coming off in nursing homes either because they're subject to stricter federal guidelines. But in other facilities that don't have outbreaks, the state is allowing fully vaccinated people to go maskless. This ultimately applies to about 750 assisted living centers, group homes, and similar facilities. So it's a huge deal. I spoke with Peter Myers, who is with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, about the reasoning behind the change. With the new CDC guidance from a few weeks ago, in addition to the new masking directions in the state of Colorado, combined with the high vaccination rates of residents in these facilities, CDPHE felt comfortable loosening the restrictions in the residential care facilities. The CDC being the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, they recently said if people are fully vaccinated, they can take off their masks in most situations. What's been the reaction to this change? 
So I turned to AARP to ask that question because they've been watching the pandemic very closely since it started, and at times they've been critical of how facilities have handled it. This change is one that they're supporting. Here's Bob Murphy, the director of Colorado's AARP. That seems reasonable. If you as a visitor, a worker, or a resident are, are, are fully vaccinated, in theory you are largely protected against contracting the virus. At some point, reason has to prevail. It's important to note that there are some people who cannot be vaccinated for various reasons. They remain at risk, and the hope is that they can be somewhat protected because others around them are vaccinated. Well, what are the numbers? How many residents have been vaccinated? The state tells me about 90% of residents are fully vaccinated. The remaining 10% either can't consent, can't be vaccinated for some reason, or don't want to be. And Michael, what about the workers who care for these people? How many of them have been vaccinated? Far fewer. About 35% of workers who care for these residents have chosen not to be vaccinated. I know this is an ongoing issue because you reported on it back in March. With masks coming off in many facilities, I'm starting to imagine a divide where workers who didn't get vaccinated have to wear masks, but their peers who got vaccinated don't have to wear masks. That's exactly what should be happening at facilities. It's hard to say if it will in all cases. As I also reported in March, throughout the pandemic, the state's inspectors found hundreds of infection prevention controller deficiencies at facilities, including simple things like workers not wearing masks. To what you were saying about vaccinations among workers, you know, I got curious about that and decided to run some numbers. Interestingly, at this point in the pandemic, more workers than residents are getting COVID-19. That's according to data for the 100 active outbreaks at facilities around the state. In my many months of crunching these outbreak numbers, that's the first time I've seen that. How many people are we talking about? Well, of the active outbreaks, 212 residents have COVID-19 and 406 workers have gotten the virus. Why are so many workers in these facilities deciding not to get vaccinated? Well, I've posed that question to state health officials and other experts, and the answers are the same that we hear about the general population. There is a lot of fear, uncertainty, and misinformation floating around. And it's possible um, many workers have adopted a wait-and-see attitude. They want to see if the vaccine works and if the risks of getting it outweigh the risks of getting COVID. Is the state doing anything at all? Can it do anything about these unvaccinated workers? When the state lifted the mask rule, it also required that facilities create COVID-19 vaccine plans that work to ensure vaccines are available on an ongoing basis for all that need them to handle the flow of new people coming into these facilities. They also have to track vaccination status for staff and residents. And here's another detail. They also have to promote, quote, vaccine confidence and acceptance. Interesting. And is this happening at facilities now? Not now, but they have until June 14th to create these plans. And how much has life returned to normal at these assisted living uh, and other facilities that don't have outbreaks? 
Well, I checked in with Doug Farmer. Uh, he's the CEO and president of the Colorado Healthcare Association, which represents nursing and assisted living facilities. He supports these vaccine plans and is hopeful the result will be that more workers get vaccinated. As for returning to normal, Farmer said that many facilities are getting there, but slowly. There's been more group dining in facilities and other social activities. I'm sure that's like a huge weight lifted in those communities. Yeah, especially as there's been another kind of pandemic going on. A lot of residents are lonely. Um, this isn't a new story, but heap on more than a year of lockdown and social distancing, and it is a crisis that has worsened. That's, that's what Bob Murphy says at AARP. And that brings us to this hopeful moment where COVID is close to being stamped out in these residential care communities, but obviously not everywhere as there are still outbreaks. To see that people are happy to be out of the most restrictive phase of, of the pandemic and who wouldn't be. But, you know, at the same time, we're not completely done with this. And, you know, we all need to be thoughtful about exercising caution. All right. And we will let that be the final word today. Michael DeYuana is KUNC's investigative reporter. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, many Native American reservations in the Mountain West closed to non-tribal citizens. That caused some economic loss, but the closures also allowed tribal citizens to experience their land without outside visitors. Stephanie Serrano has more. The Walker River Paiute Reservation is situated in remote western Nevada, surrounded by a sequence of mountains layered with shades of brown, red, and green. Up a long dirt road in the middle of all of that sits the Weber Reservoir, a small lake near Schurz, Nevada. And right now, it's very quiet. That's because at the moment, it's closed to non-tribal citizens. I love it. That's tribal member Kylie Torres. Because usually, especially when it's warm, you have random people from God knows where here, and they'll ride their quads and their razors, and they're just reckless. The reservoir is the most popular recreational attraction on the reservation, but it's been off limits to the general public since last year. Tribes across the Mountain West chose to close their land early on in the pandemic, including the Walker River Paiute tribe. Officials here say that helped keep COVID-19 at bay. But there was an unexpected benefit, too. Closing the reservation meant tribal citizens had a Weber Reservoir to themselves. There's been less littering. You could hear the families laughing around the fires, and it was nice. That's Bella Torres and Teresi Hofer, both members of the Walker River Paiute tribe. Nearly 1,000 tribal citizens live on the reservation, and for the past several months, they've been able to experience their own land by themselves, something they haven't done in decades. Tribal chairman Amber Torres says it's been wonderful. I think our people really enjoy that of having, you know, their homelands back. They can go out to the reservoir uninterrupted. They have their ancestral homelands back to go swimming, fishing, you know, spending time with their, their own families. But some who don't live on the reservation were not pleased. Torres says some people weren't respecting the tribe's decision to close the reservoir to non-citizens. When her tribe put up signs and barriers for the closure, Torres was disheartened at the response. Our signs were shot. They were ran over. They were burned. 
Torres says every day the tribe gets calls from people wanting to know when the Weber Reservoir will open, especially as the weather gets hot. You see, in pre-COVID times, on the weekends, the reservoir's six beaches were normally full with visitors from out of town. The general public was welcome, as long as they bought camping and fishing permits. Those permits are also a major source of revenue for the tribe. Chairman Torres says her community has missed out on those dollars since March of 2020. And having that shut down since March has had a huge impact on the reservation as well. Across our region, tribes have suffered similar economic loss throughout the pandemic. The Blackfeet Nation had to close its entrance to Glacier National Park in Montana. And across the Mountain West, tribes had to shut down casinos. But for Walker River Paiute tribal member Tedetsi Hofer, closing Weber Reservoir was worth it. Like it was just family out there and that was the most awesome thing I've seen. Hofer would like for that to continue in one way or another. I know we need the camping, uh, the permits and stuff with the money that comes with that and everything. But I think like a certain time of year, maybe a week or something, like it's just devoted to the community for them to enjoy just themselves. That would be nice. But as the reservoir was closed, a new economic opportunity opened up on the reservation, a cannabis dispensary. Chairman Torres says it has a special name. Tamadzukwenobi, meaning the helping home. The dispensary sits along a main highway, and Torres says business is already strong. I think that will definitely offset some of the loss of keeping the reservoir closed. Torres says that the goal for her and many tribal citizens is economic sustainability and self-sufficiency. Both the dispensary and the reservoir are part of that. As for this summer, the tribe will come together in the next couple of weeks to decide if it will open Weber Reservoir back up to the public. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Stephanie Serrano. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Across the West, drought conditions are the worst they've been in nearly two decades. The dry weather is hitting farmers and ranchers particularly hard, who need water for their crops and livestock. But it's not just the bottom line that's being threatened. The effect of drought and climate change on agricultural workers' mental health is increasingly concerning to health care providers. A warning for listeners, this next story discusses suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. From KSJD in southwest Colorado, Lucas Brady-Woods has more for KUNC. Mike Nolan has been a farmer for about 18 years. I don't like gardening. Like, (laughs) I like farming in the sense of like, I like tractors, I like equipment, I like big harvests. His farm is in the Mancus Valley at the base of Southwest Colorado's snow-capped San Juan Mountains and across from the bluffs of Mesa Verde National Park. In a normal season, Nolan grows up to seven acres of crops, anything from turnips to squash to tomatoes. This season though, he's had to cut his crops down to less than a single acre. These fields should, be cultivated and prepped and looking good, but they're covered in grass and thistle. That's because Nolan's farm and all of its neighbors are experiencing extreme drought conditions or worse, and that's limiting water supplies for the region's farmers. Alfalfa farmers ideally need 30 inches of irrigation water per acre per season for their crops. This season, though, some farmers in the county are only getting a fraction of an inch from their reservoirs. As a result, farmers have to make adjustments, and some of the sacrifices they're forced to make can be really hard on their mental health. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, should I be doing this? Like, does this make any sense? That stuff just builds. Um, And it's, on seasons like this, it can crack. 
you know, and that's the scary part. Nolan's not the only one noticing the mental health effects that drought is having on farmers. According to data compiled by Celebrating Healthy Communities, a Colorado-based suicide prevention group, farmers and ag workers are the second highest at-risk population in the county where Nolan farms. That means they're more likely to die by suicide than almost any other occupational group. And the data show another concerning correlation. Researchers also compared the state of Colorado's drought data for the past decade with the state's suicide data for the same period. When drought conditions worsen, so does the suicide rate among farmers. J.C. Karika, the CEO of Southeast Health based in La Junta, isn't surprised by those findings. He specializes in behavioral health care in rural communities. There's seasonality. I think there's peaks of anxiety, peaks, you know, peaks of depression. It's, it's ever-flowing because it's, again, weather-related or, or market volatility. He also says that drought can be especially devastating. When you see the wind come through and shear off whatever little bit of grass you had from a quarter inch of rain uh, a couple days prior, it's kind of the carrot and the stick, and sometimes there's just not enough carrot to keep, you know, to keep people's hopes high. Many mental health issues in the ag community can be compounded by lack of services. The answer, Karika says, is to make more of an effort to get mental health care to farmers on their level. Kate Greenberg is the Commissioner of Agriculture for the state of Colorado. As we see financial stress increase, as we've seen in the, you know, in the last decade or so, we also see spikes in suicide rates among agricultural communities. Greenberg says her department is working with local partners across the state to get more resources to rural areas. What works in a city might not translate to agricultural communities. So, she says, resources like online training manuals or public service announcements should be written with that in mind. Colorado also maintains a crisis hotline, a free and confidential mental health resource that's available 24-7. But as climate change continues to heat up and dry out the West farmland, Greenberg says water stress will remain a challenge to keeping agriculture viable and those who do it mentally well. Back in the Mancus Valley, Mike Nolan says this year's lack of water is changing his operation in a fundamental way. Big one was laying off everybody, which was a real bummer. Never had to do that. It was really hard to do. But Nolan says off and on therapy has really helped. I just look at it as a feast of famine. We're going to have a hard year this year. We'll figure it out. Um, We'll hope and pray that it'll be different. He says if it's not, then he'll take the year off, get a job away from the farm, and pay his bills. Then he'll see what he can do down the line. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Cortez, Colorado. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. This story is a part of ongoing coverage of Water in the West, produced by KSJD and distributed by KUNC. It's supported by the Walton Family Foundation. State lawmakers last week launched a last-minute effort to put the brakes on skyrocketing real estate prices and rising property taxes. Senate Bill 293, among other things, would allow people to defer paying some of their residential property taxes above a certain amount. The bill sponsors say it's aimed at helping Coloradans affected by the pandemic-induced economic downturn. The bill passed in the Senate on Monday, and Aaron O'Toole caught up with Jesse Paul, a reporter with the Colorado Sun, to learn more about the bill and the state of rising property taxes. We've been hearing a lot about how hot the real estate market is, and I know there were also people who got their latest property valuations and opened that up and were very shocked by how much their property taxes would be going up. Can you help put this bill into context? 
Sure. So if you live in Colorado right now, and especially if you live in a home or are searching for housing, you know that the real estate market is pretty crazy. Over the six, last six months alone, you know, prices have really skyrocketed. And so that's actually put homeowners in an interesting situation because especially for a lot of older homeowners who are on a fixed income, uh, you know, their property tax payments are going way up. And so they're facing a lot uh, bigger burden. And especially given the economic downturn, some folks are still out of work. Some folks have had stagnant wages. It's just not been easy for folks to be keeping up with the price of property taxes. So state lawmakers introduced this bill as kind of a solution to drive down what folks have to pay and allow them to put off some of those increases because they're not really looking like they're going to go down in, in anytime soon. This also has this interesting intersection with this initiative, Initiative 27, that's now collecting signatures to get on the ballot that would reduce property taxes across the board. And this bill would actually, interestingly, uh, as, as one proponent of the initiative said, quote, kneecap it uh, because it would create these new subcategories in property taxation and state law and effectively make this $1 billion property tax initiative less than half of property tax cutting as it would be. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, let's talk about SB 293. Who's sponsoring it? And what are some of the key points? And you did touch on that it would divide real estate into different categories. Right. So the sponsors are bipartisan. In the Senate, it's Senator Chris Hansen, who sits on the JBC, who's a Denver Democrat, and then Bob Rankin, who is a Carbondale Republican, who also sits on the JBC. And then over in the House, uh, the sponsor is House Majority Leader Dinea Eskar, who is a Pueblo Democrat, influential folks all around who are behind this bill. And effectively what it would do is cut down the assessment rates from 7.15 to 6.8 uh, or 6.95, depending on if you live in a multifamily home or a single family home. And then it would also cut down the property tax rates for agriculture and renewable energy. Now, this wouldn't create a permanent change, right? This is, in effect, a pause Right. So this bill, the property tax assessment rate reduction would only be in effect for the 2022 and 2023 tax years. And then if lawmakers want to, they can boost the rates back up without a vote of the people because of a provision in the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights that says as long as it's a temporary uh, tax reduction, you can kind of get around that really complicated thing where you have to have every tax increase go to the voters. The, the change in being able to put off some of the property tax increases would be uh, permanent. And basically how that works is starting in the 2023 uh, tax year, folks would be able to be put off any property tax payment increase above 4% until they sell their home. So the way it works is it's a, a lien that goes on it. And then once you have the capital gains, assuming that your house makes money, you just take it out of the purchase price later on and pay back your county assessor uh, so that money doesn't actually get lost. And that's kind of where that backfill thing goes. But I want to bring up Initiative 27 again. That would actually be a permanent taxation change. And so one of the reasons why proponents of Initiative 27 are so upset is they see this as really a way to kind of confuse voters and prevent that long-term property tax reduction that they really want to see. I know voters chose to repeal the Gallagher Amendment in November 2020. Did this kind of set the stage for this? So yeah, that's a good question. The Gallagher Amendment, for those who don't know or weren't familiar with it, effectively drove down property tax rates as commercial tax rates went up and it just made everything kind of even out. And, and with Tabor, it was really complicated. Local districts uh, and, and you know firehouses and things like that really lost a lot of money and were super frustrated with it because it, it, it created big funding headaches for them. So when the Gallagher was repealed, the property tax assessment rate was frozen at 7.15%. And, you know, with all of these rising valuations, people say, you know, look, 
these rates would have gone down if Gallagher was still in place. And lawmakers always knew that they were probably at some point going to have to address this. Uh, Senator Bob Rankin said, you know, this had to happen faster than he would have thought, but it was always something that was on the horizon. So Gallagher is gone. This is now why lawmakers are really having to try to contend with this and why Initiative 27 has popped up. It's it's created this situation where tax experts, both progressive and conservative, really want to get in this and make sure that they can stop any kind of crazy rate gain or rate lower um, before, you know, everything just kind of gets out of control. Right. Well, we know that the session is almost over. There's not really a lot of time left for lawmakers to to act. What happens next? And I'm especially interested in what happens if this passes and then the ballot initiative, does that go forward? I think the ballot initiative still will go forward. And the reason why these two things are linked is because the Senate bill changes the underlying law that Initiative 27 is seeking to change. And that's why there's these kind of intersecting things that are going on here behind the scenes in statute and really complicated can make your head explode if you really want to look into it. But, you know, if this bill passes and Initiative 27 gets on the ballot and passes, effectively what would happen is Initiative 27's effect in terms of lowering property taxes would be neutered. So instead of having this really large $1 billion property tax cut, it would probably be in the the range, I think, of like $500 is what I saw. So that's why folks who are backing that initiative are pretty upset, and they see this as an attack from the proponents of the bill to really, you know, go after and, and target what they're trying to do at the ballot box. Jesse Paul is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Jesse, thank you so much for talking with us. All right. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we learn about a Jewish farming colony near Salida in the 1880s and why parts of its story are still being debated today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced by Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.